Hi everyone, welcome to Grace Point Online. My name is Ray and I'm so glad you can join us today to hear from God's Word. We're continuing through the message series, David's Contact List. And last week we heard about David and Mephibosheth, who was the son of Jonathan. And David had sworn faithfulness to Jonathan before he passed away. And so he looked for anyone who he can show that kindness to. And even though Mephibosheth was lame, David gave him a place at his table every day. And we got to reflect over how he was there purely by grace alone. And in a similar way, we are received by King Jesus by grace alone and thought about the challenge of resting in that grace even after we become Christian. Well, today we're continuing on and we're going to be hearing about David and his mighty men. And Pastor Steve, who serves at our Grace Point Seattle Church, will be bringing us the message today. This passage begins with the mention of 30 chief men. They're also known as David's mighty men. These were the guys who were the most loyal to David. They fought bravely, heroically to support him long before he ever officially became king. In verse 13, we get three of these 30 mighty men who came down to David in a place called Cave of Adullam. That's the hiding place for David when he was a fugitive on the run from that wicked, jealous King Saul who wanted him dead. Well, earlier in this chapter, we're given a pretty vivid description of one of these mighty men. His name is Eleazar. Let me read from verse 9. It says, And next to him among the three mighty men was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, son of Ahohai. He was with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel withdrew. He rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day. Man, I love that picture of Eleazar, son of Dodo, who stood his ground when everyone else retreated and fleeing for their lives. But he stood firm and struck down the Philistines till his hand grew tired and clung or froze to that sword. Such was the zeal and dedication of this guy. I mean, Eleazar, he wasn't the exception, actually. All of those mighty men, they were pretty exceptional and powerful dudes. There's one guy who took down 800 men with a single spear. Man, that's like Bruce Lee and nunchucks on steroids. You know, yet another guy, he went down into a pit and struck down a lion. I mean, all of those mighty men of David, they were lethal. They were fiercely brave and legendary warriors. But they weren't always that mighty. In fact, in 1 Samuel chapter 22, verse 2, we're given an unflattering description of what they were like when they first gathered around David. It says this, And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him, and he became commander over them, and there were with him about 400 men. It says that these guys who rallied around David were in distress, probably for a lot of different reasons. Maybe they made some bad decisions, had moments of indiscretion that haunted them with shame and regret for many years. And now these guys are on the run, running away from consequences. It also says they were in debt, probably because of gambling. And they were bitter in soul, meaning they were discontent. You see, the bottom line is these guys were not your blue chip recruits. They had terrible resumes. They were basically undisciplined misfits of society. They're not the types who would be voted the most likely to succeed at their high schools, more like most likely to end up behind bars. I mean, these guys were headed to a life of just hiring themselves out to the highest bidder, working for some uninspiring, worthless warlord, and some of them might have been just the local bullies, pillaging, plundering wherever they went. And they might have even met each other in some town, picked a fight with each other, and killed each other off. Overall, 
they would have ended up selling for a meaningless life with low expectations. But all that changed when they met David. It says in verse 2, they gathered to him and he became commander over them. Once these delinquents and misfits of society started following the right commander and king, their lives were transformed and ennobled. And as they drew near to David, they were able to draw near to each other and become forged together as band of brothers, not striving to be a mighty man seeking vainglory on their own like some Goliath figure, but instead they become the mighty men. These guys who were once outlaws, mercenaries, gamblers, these guys who were once rebels without a cause, just aimlessly wandering the streets up to no good, looking for a fight. But all that changed on the day they met David, the day they rallied around him. It was a day they gave up their free-ranging autonomous ways and chose to submit to David's leadership. What do you call that? Well, I call that becoming meek. Jesus said, blessed are the meek. The Greek word behind meek refers to a tame wild animal, like a wild horse that gets tamed and trained. Being meek doesn't negate strength but it harnesses all that strength, power, and potential in meaningful ways. And that's what happened to these guys who followed David. They became highly disciplined, effective, noble group of mighty men through whom God was able to further his kingdom work. We see in Jesus' ministry a similar story of gathering misfits, the poor, the down and outs, all those in distress and debt, bitter in soul. They came to Jesus. They responded to Jesus saying, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. Being weary and burdened, that usually doesn't translate to becoming strong and successful. And yet Jesus gathered around himself such people, fishermen, tax collectors, people who were poor and uneducated. Jesus took a ragtag group of people to spark a movement to turn the world upside down. Through them, the gospel of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus, the true king, advanced all over the world through many centuries, impacting millions of people to this day. How did this happen? It happened like it did in the days of David. People were forged together by their mutual submission and devotion to a king and cause. By drawing near Jesus, all who were distressed, debtors, brokenhearted, those who were lost, they found forgiveness, they found healing and a new life and purpose. By following Jesus, they became mighty men and women, waging spiritual battles for lost souls to rescue them into the kingdom of God. This is the kind of effect that following Jesus has on all of us to this day. Personally, I think I was uh, destined to repeat the mistakes of my father, becoming an abusive, proud, alcoholic person, but at the same time, a socially savvy person. You know, my dad was actually a pretty winsome conversationalist when he was sober. He knew how to be generous to win the favor of people, even going into great debt to do that. You know, he was infamous for throwing expensive drinking parties for his friends while letting his own family suffer poor conditions at home. Though he made a lot of friends in high places, he was always filled with insecurity, which made him restless and bitter in soul. We know that would have been my fate too, if it were not for encountering Jesus. Through Jesus, I was saved. I was redeemed. In Him, all my desires for significance and self-worth was answered. Being devoted to Jesus made me and molded me into being the sort of husband, father, and spiritual leader I am today. Rather than being selfish and manipulative, God changed me to become a more loving person as I learned to love those who were weary and burdened by their sins just like I was. Rather than a bruised ego with a violent temper, Jesus helped me become a self-controlled, 
patient, gracious person. I testify to the fact that Jesus is our rightful commander and Lord. He is the only one worthy of our full devotion. And when we are fully devoted to him, we get to experience our lives being ennobled, infused with zeal to do the good works of God. Let's go back to our main passage. Notice how in this story it zooms in on just three of the 30 mighty men. They're not even named, nor are we given any descriptions of epic battles they were in, like Eleazar, the son of Dodo. Instead, we're told this short story. The story begins with David longing for water in his hometown, Bethlehem, which was under enemy control. It says in verse 15, David says, Oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. So here's David. I imagine he's just sort of thinking out loud, perhaps in the moment when he's feeling worn out, tired from being a fugitive on the run, um, being on the run away from that crazy, jealous king. I imagine that he's wistfully just giving voice to what he longed for. It's like those times during those long, gloomy, rainy days in Seattle where, uh, in which I would long for my ratatouille, which is what my mom used to cook for me growing up. It's that Korean dish called omurice, fried rice with ketchup wrapped in fried scrambled eggs with a side of bean sprout, of course. Just thinking about it makes me hungry. You know, David, I imagine, was having a moment like that where he's longing for something to refresh him and he thinks about what refreshed him when he was growing up. Now, clearly, he didn't intend for any of his guys to actually go fetch this water for him. I mean, David being a poetic, emotional guy who, after all, he wrote a lot of the Psalms, I think he was just expressing the longing of his heart. But these guys, they overhear him, and they take it literally. They actually go on this long trek for some 12 miles, burst through enemy lines, draw that water from the well, and they bring it back to David. When they return with the water, David recognized what they had done for him. He doesn't grab that jug of water and start chugging it down like a pirate and say, ah, this is refreshing. I mean, no, he instead does this peculiar thing. He pours it all out before God as a drink offering. It says in verse 17, David says this, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? And he's basically saying, you know, I am not worthy of this. In that moment, David elevates what these guys did for him to something only God is deserving of. And what is it that David lifts up to God? Isn't it the love and devotion of his men? I mean, what can be more precious than that? It's better than advanced weaponry, better than the might of a hundred hired men. Scholars say that one thing that's striking about this passage is that there's no other details about these three particular mighty men in the rest of the Bible. I mean, Militarily, the story has no significance, and it doesn't even have a real historic significance. So then it begs the question, why? Why of all the things that could be written about these three particular mighty men, we get this story? Well, we know from First Chronicles 11 that these guys were part of the group of men who were credited with giving David the strong support he needed to subdue the Lord's enemies on all sides, to be established king, and to extend his rule over the whole kingdom, just as the Lord promised. It was a time of prosperity, a spiritual flourishing of God's people, the golden age of Israel. And it would be tempting to simply credit David's success to the might and skill of his men. But this story is inserted here to tell us the real secret behind David's success. The secret behind what made David's men so mighty. It was ultimately their total devotion and love for David. 
And that love resulted in doing some pretty reckless, over-the-top things like what these three guys did for David. It's sort of crazy, but also pretty inspiring and admirable at the same time. But sadly, that sort of crazy love is so scarce and even frowned upon in our days. Because why? Well, quite frankly, because people want to live very sensibly. I mean, what passes for being sensible in our world? I think often it just comes out to being measured and calculative. It's ultimately a selfish life that's guarded and fearful. And though this kind of sensible life may seem wise, it's an anemic life that lacks passion, lacks substantive joy, and ultimately lacks love. It may be a life that maximizes comfort and minimizes pains, but without love, what is that? It's, it's ultimately foolish. It's like the guy who's a husband and father. He invests all his time and energy into his career, but neglects his wife and kids. And that sensible life of working so hard to make a lot of money so you can buy for yourself a safe and comfortable life, all that without love, that's foolish. So then a sensible life devoid of love is foolish. But here's the thing. There are a lot of things that seems foolish, but in the context of love, it's beautiful. You know, out of love, a stingy, selfish young man will go into debt to buy a bouquet of a dozen roses, make a reservation at an expensive restaurant that makes you pay more for the presentation of the dish than the taste of it. And he'll go out and buy a ring that costs a small fortune to pop the big question, will you marry me? Out of love, a guy will do something like that. And out of love, a brother will even give up his kidney for his sister, which is actually what one of our brothers did in our church. Out of love, a group of friends will pay the high cost of buying plane tickets during peak travel season to fly across the country to be there for a friend who tragically lost his mom or dad. Out of love. Out of love, you do some crazy over-the-top things like what those three mighty men did for David. It's sort of crazy, but such crazy love makes sense, and we can even feel inspired by it. I'm reminded of that story in the Gospels about a woman who did a similar over-the-top extravagant thing for Jesus. She came before him with an alabaster jar of really expensive perfume. It represented her whole life savings. In that moment, she cracks it open, pours it all out on Jesus. When the disciples saw her doing that, they criticized her. They even got upset with her. Thinking she's crazy, they said, why this waste? Jesus interrupted and told them to leave her alone because what she did was a beautiful thing done unto him. It was beautiful because she did it out of love for Jesus. In fact, it's not only beautiful, but entirely appropriate when you consider who Jesus is. According to the Bible, the parallel of David for us today is Jesus. He is our Lord. He is the King of Kings. He is the one who is worthy of all our wholehearted devotion and love. So then they begs the question, where are the mighty men and women of our days? Where are those who would do the over-the-top zealous thing for Jesus? The Bible tells us that we too are supposed to be like soldiers for Christ, like those mighty men who were for David. We too are supposed to aspire to valor, loyalty, zeal in serving our Lord and King Jesus. But here's the thing. Such crazy love is an endangered quality among Christians nowadays. More often than not, you'll hear around the church people saying, Do I have to? Is that a command? If you start talking like that, man, you're missing the point. I mean, can you imagine those mighty men saying to themselves, Oh, did David actually say he wanted water from Bethlehem? Does he want it now? Can we just get some water from the stream down the hill or something? It's like a husband who responds to his wife, asking him to go to the market to get some milk for the child because the 
Milk ran out. And he says, uh, do I have to do it right now? Are you sure we're out of milk? Hey, did you uh, check the fridge, the other one? By that point, the wife's like fed up and says, forget it. I'll get it myself. And the husband like quickly apologized. Oh, I'm so, so sorry. And begrudgingly goes out and out of shame gets that milk. Well, he gets it all right. He gets the milk, but there's no love in it. Nothing beautiful to celebrate in that scenario, right? Come on, guys. Do we really want to live like that? That sort of stingy, loveless life in the name of being sensible? Wouldn't you rather live out a life of love? I mean, don't you want to come alive with zeal and passion for something, for someone? I tell you, here's the thing. There's no greater cause, no greater person to devote your whole life to, to love with all your heart, mind, body, and soul than Jesus Christ, who died and rose again for you and me. So let's commit to strive to be such mighty men and women for our Savior, King Jesus. Let's serve Him with a zealous love. For the three mighty men, their zealous love for their king resulted in jumping at the chance to get what David longed for. What about you and me? What does our King Jesus long for if it's not water from Bethlehem? Wouldn't He wish for all the souls on our campuses to be reached and saved? And if so then what are we willing to do out of love for Jesus? I'm thankful for the examples of zeal I see around our church. You know, every fall, our whole church gets mobilized to welcome the new students and to reach as many as possible, from flyering and going out to the dining halls. And before COVID, we used to actually provide free Korean barbecue at our new student welcome nights. This required spending hours cutting and marinating hundreds of pounds of meat, it was an Eleazar sort of moment when the hands of our brothers and sisters grew tired and froze to those cutting knives. I've also seen many holding down full-time jobs in a season of intense workload, and yet they push through. They push through to squeeze out of themselves every bit of emotional and physical energy so that at the end of the workday, they're rushing to campus, fighting for a parking spot, heading to a dining hall to meet new students or a classroom to host a meeting with some students with the food they prepared. I've seen parents with young kids who make sacrifices to surrender almost every spare moment they have after changing diapers and feeding their kids, trying to maintain a clean, orderly home. They try to pour out all that they have left to be able to reach out to students. They, they do this by banding together with other parents in, in our church to help each other watch each other's kids and to free each other up for ministry. Even the singles in our church get involved as they enter into a rotation to help out with the babysitting. All this is our way, I think, in which we're saying to Jesus, we hear you. We want to do what's pleasing to you. We want to see your kingdom come. Your will be done. Thank you, Pastor Steve, for that message. Let's pray together to end our time. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word and the story of David and his mighty men. Thank you for showing us this, this picture of what love is supposed to be like. Not calculative or measured, but extravagant, zealous, and taking your wish as our command. And Father, as we have a chance to serve you, the Lord of Lords, King Jesus, help us to have a similar heart that does not measure out our obedience to you, but takes your wish as our command and your wish that every person come to a saving knowledge of you, Lord, that that would be just our life, passion, and devotion to please you and to honor you. 
We thank you so much once again for your word. Help us to hold on to it throughout this week. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, that's the message. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you next week.